If the United States is not prepared to increase its investment in strong partnerships, adversaries will gladly fill this void. Communicate, cooperate, and collaborate with your embassy colleagues. And what we're all trying to do is coordinate sort of our skills and resources and mandates to implement sort of the president's national security strategy. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Soch Podcast, where nothing human is alien to us. I'm your producer, Captain Haziano, an instructor with the Social Sciences Department at West Point. For this episode, we're pleased to bring you a conversation featuring two practitioners of U.S. foreign policy, Major Tom Dearnforth, a U.S. Army Foreign Area Officer, and Dr. Ann Bennett, a Foreign Service Officer from the U.S. State Department who is currently in the faculty at SOCH. They're interviewed by Major Sean McMahon, himself a Foreign Area Officer and also a SOCH faculty member. Just a quick word of caution. Due to some technical difficulties, we had to re-record certain portions of the podcast. As a result, you might notice some discrepancies in the audio quality here and there. We hope that these aren't too distracting for you. All right then, without further ado, here's the episode. I'm Sean McMahon, an assistant professor in the Department of Social Sciences here at West Point. On any given day, in hundreds of cities around the world, thousands of Americans arrive to work at diplomatic missions such as U.S. embassies, consulates, or representing the U.S. at international organizations. Their goal, collectively, is to try to advance U.S. interests and accomplish goals on behalf of the American people. To do this, they have at their disposal what foreign policy practitioners often call the Foreign Policy Toolkit. Today, we sit down with two of those practitioners, one an Army Foreign Area Officer, the other a State Department Foreign Service Officer, to get a first-hand account of what it's like to put policy into practice and to actually change the world on behalf of the U.S. Major Tom Dearenforth is a U.S. Army Foreign Area Officer. He's a graduate of both West Point and George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. He recently left the Democratic Republic of Congo, where he spent nearly three years as a military attaché, and was the acting defense attaché for over seven months. In Congo, Major Dearenforth served as the Army and the Department of Defense representative to both DRC and the Republic of Congo. He was recently named the 2019 Military Attaché of the Year by the Defense Intelligence Agency. Tom joins us from Germany, where he now serves on the U.S. AFRICOM staff. It's great to be here. Dr. Ann Bennett is a U.S. Foreign Service officer, currently serving as a visiting faculty member of international relations in the Department of Social Sciences here at West Point. Anne has served as a Foreign Service Officer in U.S. diplomatic missions in Bahrain, Pakistan, Nepal, and Germany over more than 16 years of service in the State Department. She holds a Ph.D. in Political Science from the University of Michigan and a B.A. in Economics and Political Science from Bucknell University. Glad to join you. Okay, Tom, we'll start with you. You're an Army Foreign Area Officer. What's a FAO and how do I become one? Well, Sean, I'm, I'm pretty glad you asked. FAOs actually come from all four branches of the service, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force, and the Marine Corps. Uh, we are regionally focused experts in political military operations, and FAOs are actually expected to possess a combination of strategic focus across their area of concentration. And when I say area of concentration, I'm talking about a geographic area that FAOs are assigned upon accession into the FAO Corps. FAOs are expected to possess the accommodation of strategic focus, regional expertise, political, cultural, economic, geographic awareness, and, very importantly, 
foreign language proficiency in their assigned area of concentration. So for me, I'm an African FAO focused on Sub-Saharan Africa. I'm a 48 Juliet, and my assigned language is French. FAOs can serve in a variety of different roles, both in and outside of embassies abroad. FAOs are most normally found as military attaches or security assistance officers at a U.S. embassy abroad, but they also can serve in various headquarters locations, combatant commands, army service component commands, or even the Pentagon. Other FAO roles can include arms control specialists, country desk officers, liaison officers, and even being assigned to foreign military headquarters. Bottom line is that a FAO is responsible to serve as the Army and or DOD representative in a foreign country working in a U.S. embassy right alongside their Department of State colleagues. In embassies, FAOs execute national security policies, they advance U.S. security interests, and really importantly, they build and strengthen key military relationships on the ground with our foreign partners. That all sounds really interesting, Tom. So how do I become a FAO? Before becoming a FAO, officers are required to be a branch qualified captain. And what that means is that you've really already commanded a company. It's really vital to become well-grounded in your basic branch during those first five to seven years in the Army before transitioning to the FAO Corps. Whether you're an infantry officer, artillery officer, engineer officer, these first five to seven years really provide your bedrock experience that will serve you as a FAO for your entire career, even working at their strategic level. Now that's just getting into the FAO program, but also there's the FAO training pipeline. And here's an area that I believe that the Army really gets right. After being assessed into the Foreign Area Officer Corps, again, around five to seven years of time in service, officers are assigned an area of concentration. For me, that was Sub-Saharan Africa. And then they're assigned a core language. For me, that was French. FAO training is broken into three sections. There's the Defense Language Institute, where FAOs learn their core language. There's in-region training, where FAOs go to a foreign embassy that's located within their area of concentration to conduct a one-year immersion where they use their language they just learned, they travel throughout the area visiting different countries, different U.S. embassies, and learning about U.S. security policy in their area of concentration. And then the third phase is advanced civil schooling or a graduate degree. This is a fully funded degree focusing on security policy or international relations in your assigned region. Every year, FAOs attend top-tier graduate schools such as Georgetown, Johns Hopkins, or Stanford, just to name a few. So if you're the type of cadet that likes to learn a foreign language, likes to travel abroad, is interested in living in a foreign country and advancing U.S. security policy, consider being a foreign area officer. That's good. I, I think that's going to be like the promo for the FAO Corp. I mean, I, I don't know if you know, Ann, but Tom is the 2019 best military attache across the entire of Department of Defense. So we're, we're getting we're getting the FAO pitch from the best. I'd like to bring Anne into the conversation here too. Anne, you're a foreign service officer. What is a foreign service officer? How do I become one? When someone says they're a diplomat, are they talking about what you do? Thanks, Sean. Foreign service provides State Department representatives serving as diplomats around the world. So yes, you know, foreign service officers are diplomats. But I'd say sort of our, our mission as foreign service officers is to promote peace, support prosperity, protect American citizens while we're advancing the interests of the United States. So we serve in a variety of roles and positions around the world. So that we have more than 270 embassies and consulates and other diplomatic missions in around 190 countries. 
so again, it, there's really good opportunity to serve in a variety of locations around the world and also a variety of positions. So we're organized into five different sections, sort of a political section, uh, economic, public affairs, sort of consular and management. Let me just give you sort of a, a one sentence or less description of each of those. Uh, again, political, we're focusing generally on the bilateral relationship um, with whatever host country we're in. Economics, again, as it sounds, paying attention to the economic relationship uh, and business conditions in the country. Public affairs will cover the uh, press relationships, any sort of media questions, media engagement, uh, as well as cultural and educational uh, exchanges. The consular section deals with sort of visas, both non-immigrant visas and immigrant visas, uh, and takes care of you know, American citizens overseas, uh, and also deals with passports. Uh, and the management section sort of supports all of us overseas and really helps the embassy function and run and sort of manages our facilities and provides all of the support to all the other sections. So we're all trying to communicate U.S. foreign policy to the host government uh, and communicating sort of host government views, you know, back to Washington. So many, and I might even say most foreign service officers, pursue this career as a second career. And so we would choose one of these five career tracks, uh, and that's sort of our first step. Then we can register to take the Foreign Service Officer test. If you pass that, you'd be invited to what we call an oral assessment. Again, if you pass that part of the process, then you would begin to get your clearances, go through a review panel, uh, and be placed on sort of what we call the register or the list. And that means you'd be eligible to be hired in one of these career tracks. When you get pulled off the list and hired, sort of then we get some general training, regardless of which career track you've chosen. Uh, and then depending on the assignment you're given, you may get sort of language training, area studies, but we will all get some additional training for the job that we'll take in one of these career tracks. We are generally considered generalists. So that means even though we have a career track, we may at times serve in positions outside of that career track. And we may choose a region as a sort of a home region, but we also often serve in multiple regions over the course of our career. So, you know, unlike the FAO program, which really sort of gives you a, a stronger focus, we are more uh, designed to be generalist and serve wherever, both in terms of the area of responsibility and in terms of the region. So if you're the type of person who's looking for a career change or looking to have an impact on the world, foreign service might be a good career opportunity for you to pursue. Awesome. So we got the official party lines out of the way. <laughs> Thank you both for that. And when you hear the phrase foreign policy toolkit, what does that mean to you? What does it look like to do diplomacy on behalf of the United States? So Sean, while the State Department sort of leads or runs the embassy, we're definitely not the only department that's serving overseas. So when I think of the foreign policy toolkit, to me that includes sort of the personnel and resources from all of our department and agencies that play a role in foreign policy. So for example, we also have some attaches from the Department of Treasury, from Commerce, sometimes from Agriculture, with FBI, with our legal attaches, so among others. 
again, not all of these other agencies will be posted at every embassy or consulate. Often they'll have regional responsibilities, but the general toolkit, uh, again, can reach out to these other departments that may be posted overseas. And at times we can reach back to Washington for other expertise and resources. And what we're all trying to do is coordinate sort of our skills and resources and mandates to implement sort of the president's national security strategy. Now, more specifically, sort of what I'm doing sort of as a diplomat overseas, uh, again, I have worked in political and economic sections in my career. Uh, and so that means that often my main interlocutor, sort of my main counterpart is often in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, so I will need to, again, get to know who's ever responsible for covering the relationship with the United States. And again, we will have sort of reg regular meetings to exchange information. Again, Washington will ask us to pass messages to the host government. If the host government wants to, again, send a message back to Washington, you know, we can also, you know, be part of that. We'll meet with other sort of politicians, you know, ministers, secretaries, depending, you know, name depending upon the country. But we don't limit ourselves to meeting only with sort of official representatives of the government. You know, I've spent a lot of time talking to civil society, you know, opposition politicians, general activists, business owners, you know, we're trying to really get the feel for on the ground, what are people thinking and saying and doing? How are they reacting to sort of current events? So in many of my jobs, uh, I have had the opportunity to learn about the local culture and language before I've gone to the posting. And I think that's definitely made me more effective as a diplomat. But some of the specific training we get depends upon the job that we're doing in the country that we're we're operating in. And it will depend upon the English language ability that's expected among sort of our counterparts. So some of my colleagues have not gotten as much language training as I have, but it may not have been necessary for the type of job that they were doing. So Tom, it sounds like Anne is out there doing a lot on the ground when she's working out of an embassy. I was wondering, how does your experience working in a U.S. embassy compare? Well, I can definitely support exactly what Ann just said, is that Department of State colleagues are very busy executing U.S. foreign policy in embassies abroad. For AFEO, we work right alongside our Department of State colleagues. And while we have many different jobs and many different responsibilities, I narrow AFEO's responsibilities down to four main roles in an embassy. First is to coordinate security programs and security assistance. The second is to represent the Department of Defense and, for me, the Army in that assigned country. The third role is to be an advisor, advisor to the ambassador, advisor to the country team. And when I say country team, I'm referring to my Department of State colleagues in an embassy. And then the fourth role, and really the most general role, is to be a partner, a strong and reliable partner to our foreign military in that assigned country. Now, while this is pretty broad, I do believe that partnership is driven through AFEO's ability to build relationships with foreign military counterparts. Building these relationships does require an understanding of the U.S. policy, regional and cultural expertise, and language proficiency. Now, th this is one area, area that FAOs do really focus on. As Anne mentioned earlier, Department of State diplomats are generalists. They focus across the world, while foreign area officers focus on their specific area of concentration. Again, for me, that's Sub-Saharan Africa. 
So for me, I am expected to be able to be a French linguist and use that language on a daily basis. And I strongly believe that as a FAO, regional expertise and FAO in foreign language proficiency really are, you could say, are, are weapon systems that enable FAOs to advance strategic interests on a personal level. Now, how do we do diplomacy? There, there's a lot of different ways that FAOs build relationships and partner with their foreign military counterparts. One is through office calls, calling up on the phone and conducting a meeting in that general's office, in that colonel's office, visiting a training base, visiting a command headquarters or a tactical operations center in that foreign country. And that involves a lot of in-country travel, site visits, command visits, and even welcoming in uh, U.S. military generals that are visiting that country to conduct their own key leader engagements. Another area where we build strong partnerships is through planning and conducting joint military exercises between the United States military and our partner. We also, like our State Department colleagues, attend diplomatic events that enable interactions with senior officials. These can include national days, ceremonies, and various receptions. We also send foreign military officers to the United States for training to conduct professional military education courses in the U.S. Uh, this allows foreign officers to get a better understanding of the United States and come back being well-versed in how the United States military operates and share that understanding within their own military. Lastly, these are real relationships built through honesty and candor. A FAO is a reliable conduit between the DOD and that country's chief of defense and senior military officers. Sometimes the very best FAOs will find themselves advising both their own U.S. military general officers and that country's foreign general officers. Now, it may sound a bit overwhelming to be required to build relationships with foreign military officers, many of them being general officers, and doing it all in a foreign language. But rest assured that the FAO training will really prepare you to understand that country, understand that country's culture, and be able to speak that foreign language proficiently. So overall, just like what Anne mentioned, our job really focuses on building strong and enduring relationships with our partners. U.S. embassies tend to be busy places with a lot going on. What are the dynamics like between all the different departments and agencies that work for a given U.S. mission? How do we make sure that we're working as a unified team? So, Sean, the way we do that in general is by holding, you know, as Tom mentioned, these country team meetings. And this will be meetings led by the ambassador as the senior representative you know, of the president in the country. Um, but we will include sort of all of the section heads from the State Department sections and the leads from any other uh, departments or agencies that are at post. So our defense attache definitely has a seat at the table. Uh, if we have other agencies, we would also include them. And that's where every uh, agency head or every section head is going to be informing the others and informing the ambassador about their current projects and sort of getting direction from the ambassador about what we should be doing, but making sure we're all working towards the same goal at the same time. Yeah, in particular, working with my defense attache or security assistance colleagues, again, we'll talk about reporting, we'll talk about state DOD coordination on how, what sort of agreements we need or where we are in sort of the process to move the programs forward. Yeah, I very much agree with Anne on this point. I've had a chance to observe a lot of great coordination between Department of State and Department of Defense 
personnel in our embassies. And an area where state and defense work quite well together is implementing various security assistance programs. One program in particular that has demonstrated superb return on investment is the International Military and Education Training Program, otherwise known as IMET. Now, this is a State Department program, but at the embassy level, it is administered by FAOs in the offices of security cooperation. Now, why is IMET an effective program? In fact, it's, it's a low-cost, highly effective program that trains, educates, and professionalizes foreign officers in the United States alongside military counterparts at various professional military education schools. Think basic officer leader course, staff college, or even the war college. IMET introduces our foreign military students to American values and democratic elements like our judicial system, free speech, equality, the Constitution, human rights, and much more. Now, how do you measure success for training foreign military officers in the United States? Well, today, the IMET program accounts for over 4,000 graduates that are current or former heads of state, ministers of defense, chiefs of defense, or other general-level officers in their foreign countries. Thanks to IMET, these well-placed graduates all speak English fluently, understand the U.S. military and American values, and support mutual security objectives that strengthen strategic ties between nations. And as good as this program is, it is quite inexpensive compared to the other much costlier security assistance programs. Now, the U.S. does stand to gain significantly by increasing its investment in IMET. It's currently at about $115 million a year. Now, increasing IMET opportunities will counter malign influence from our adversaries. It'll continue to build interoperability with our partner and militaries. It'll strengthen strategic relationships. It'll develop English language capacities in our partners, and it'll promote American values abroad. This increased engagement will strengthen U.S. access and influence during a time of global power competition. If the United States is not prepared to increase its investment in strong partnerships, adversaries will gladly fill this void. So for the cadets in the audience, if you have a foreign classmate, that foreign classmate is probably in the United States conducting professional military education through a security assistance program. Awesome. Yeah, Tom, those are good points about IMET. State is also very pleased with the program and thinks it's been very effective. The security assistance programs that are managed by the Department of State are really there to advance U.S. national security by ensuring stronger and more capable allies and partners who can more effectively partner with us in coalition operations, counterterrorism missions, and take on a greater share of the burden of meeting shared security challenges. Just this, like going through this process, I love it because it's just like the great like example of like the interagency process of Maine State loving to do wordsmithing and all that stuff. It's good times. <laughs> I'm sure when everything goes right, it's very satisfying. We all know that that's often easier said than done, though. What are some of the main challenges a diplomat or a member of a U.S. Com country team has to overcome when accomplishing these missions? How can you overcome these challenges? Well, you would think that living abroad, sometimes in a very austere location, speaking a foreign language every day, and li really living in the middle of a foreign culture on a permanent basis, that would be challenging enough. And that would offer the most challenging aspect of your daily life. But for me, my, my belief on this question is that it really comes down to communication. You know, communication and, and being a good communicator really is the most important part about being a successful FAO and being a successful diplomat abroad. And communication also includes your bosses. As a FAO, there are numerous bosses that you're going to need to report to. Bosses can include the U.S. ambassador within that embassy where you work. A separate boss can be the combatant commander responsible for the country that you're located in in that geographic area. 
A separate boss could be located at the Pentagon or at an Army headquarters. And no matter who your boss is, communication is key for a fail. You must continually keep all bosses informed, and it's your job to keep all bosses happy. To promote good communication within the embassy, it's imperative to have a cooperative approach with your embassy colleagues. For me, as a military attaché, I would touch base with the embassy's political and economic offices on a daily basis, and, and sometimes more, more often than that. Now, bureaucratic barriers can limit collaboration at higher levels, but within an embassy country team, your office is right next to that political chief or that economic chief or even the deputy chief of mission and the ambassador themselves. And you can really eliminate these bureaucratic barriers by establishing these open lines of communication. So overall, communicate, cooperate, and collaborate with your embassy colleagues. So Tom, I absolutely agree on the need to communicate uh, regularly. I also was meeting on an at least daily basis with the defense attache and the head of Office of Military Cooperation. But I want to point out, sometimes our challenges are not just sort of internal to U.S. government, but there may also be sort of external challenges just at the host country where we are, whether it's unrest or instability that may limit our ability to get out and about or other sort of political differences of opinion. But again, communication is how we help overcome some of those challenges. So it sounds like we've talked a lot about the importance of relationships, cooperation, communication, being out there in the field, working with local partners. Across all of that, what are some of the most satisfying experiences that you've had? What jumps to your mind first and foremost when you think about why you love your job? Well, Sean, after 30 months uh, living and, and working in, in both the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Republic of Congo, I have numerous experiences, both, both positive and, and more challenging. I'd say the most satisfying experience for me uh, was occurred in, late in 2018. I had the opportunity to negotiate a bilateral technical arrangement between AFRICOM and the Republic of Congo Ministry of Defense and Chief of Defense. So the situation was that the Democratic Republic of Congo across the river was on the eve of a highly contested election where there was expected to be violence and unrest in the city of Kinshasa, Kinshasa and throughout the country. I had the opportunity to cross the river from where I was living in Kinshasa by boat over to the other country of accreditation, uh, Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo. And, and my task was to go meet with the Minister of Defense, the Chief of Defense, and their respective staffs and spend a week negotiating a technical arrangement between the U.S. AFRICOM and between their countries that would allow for U.S. troops to enter Republic of Congo in case of emergency where they could stage and then later deploy to conduct operations across the river in Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo to protect American citizens if unrest got to a certain level. So the last week of December 2018, I uh, was able to conduct a whole week of negotiations in French, site visits, and various other meetings and coordination between AFRICOM, the Republic of Congo, the U.S. Embassy, both in Brazzaville and Kinshasa. And at the end of that week of negotiations, we had a formalized, signed agreement between U.S. AFRICOM and the Republic of Congo that did allow for U.S. forces to come in without a passport, with weapons, in order to stage and then later deploy to protect U.S. citizens. Thankfully, we never had to use that technical arrangement. The 2018 election in Kinshasa DRC went smoothly, and Congo had its first peaceful transition of power in its history since its independence in 1960. So this is what FAOs do. 
fails to react to crises or potential crises in foreign countries. And oftentimes they need to use their foreign language proficiency. They need to meet with senior political or military officers and really get the job done one way or another to protect American citizens and advance U.S. interests. That's really interesting stuff, Tom. Really, really unique times that you got to be a part of. And I'm sure you have tons of similar experiences. Yeah, so every post, you know, every embassy or consulate I've been at has had you know, its own set of challenges and sometimes internal, uh, as I said, and other times external. But yeah, we're trying to problem solve and we're trying to communicate back to Washington so that our decision makers here have the most up-to-date and accurate information as they're formulating policy. Uh, and I would say when I was in Kathmandu, again, it was a time just after the Civil War uh, where the country was trying to move towards democratization, move towards becoming a more federal country from a unitary country. And the embassy was very involved in trying to help put things on a peaceful path forward. And the, again, there was a lot of uncertainty, a lot of lack of knowledge about how things were actually going to proceed. So we were actually very engaged in trying to sort of let others know where things stood uh, and help the Nepalis run a successful sort of democratic election uh, and help put them in position to write a new constitution. And so I think, again, transitions uh, are difficult and messy, uh, but I think we played a productive role and contributed to some of the success of their transition. That's really interesting stuff. So for either of you, as we look forward, what do you think might be some of the challenges and opportunities that U.S. embassy country teams might face in the future? Well, Sean, I think for, for FAOs in particular, I think that a major challenge for us is priorities. Remember that FAOs are the face of DOD with our foreign partners. But as priorities change, so too can FAO billets and positions. Now, remember, if certain decisions are made to downsize or consolidate FAO positions within embassies, taking FAOs out of foreign embassies and consolidating their locations, it's going to make communication, cooperation, collaboration, and most importantly, relationship building all the more difficult. You cannot surge relationship building. It's a slow, deliberate process that requires time, investment, and presence in that country. I could talk about this all day with both of you, but maybe maybe one final question. So as our conversation draws to a close, what advice would you have to any of our listeners out there who may be someday interested in doing what you do? So if you're passionate about public service and want to represent the United States around the world, you know, foreign service is a challenging and rewarding career that is certainly open to you sort of after your army or military career. You know, we're looking for people who are curious, who are organized, who have good writing skills. So I would recommend that you keep State Department in mind for the future. You, know, you can always go to careers.state.gov to get more information on all of our career tracks, and not just as Foreign Service generalists, but there's also other specialist positions um, or civil service positions if you'd rather stay in the United States. Now, if you're interested in being a FAO, my advice for you is to go ahead and gain expertise in your basic branch. As I mentioned before, use those first five, six, seven years in the artillery, the infantry, or whatever your basic branch is to learn the Army and to learn the tactical level of your job. That will come back to support you for the rest of your career. But what else can you do to prepare? I'd say you need to be an active learner. Read, study, write, learn foreign languages. 
if you can't tell by now from, from our conversation, communication is a FAO's most important tool that's written, oral, and even your foreign language capacity. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. But thanks to both of you for coming to the podcast. This was a great conversation, and hopefully it's useful to some of our listeners out there. Dr. Ann Bennett, Major Tom Dierenforth, thanks so much for a fascinating conversation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Soch Podcast. If you liked what you heard and are eager for more, please consider subscribing to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever streaming service you're using. Be sure to also leave us a five-star review and to recommend us to all your friends. Please send any comments, suggestions, and critiques to socialresearchlab at westpoint.edu. That's S-O-S-H, research, lab, at westpoint.edu. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and should not be seen as reflective of the official positions of the U.S. Military Academy, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any other government entity. Thanks again to our guests, Major Dearnforth and Dr. Bennett, as well as to Major McMahon for hosting this episode. Special thanks to Major Tom Fox for helping with some of the production and editing. And lest we forget, thanks as well to the West Point Band for allowing us to use their music. I'm Captain Haziano, signing off. See you next time.